Please turn with me uh, in your Bibles this morning once again to 2 Samuel. Uh, chapter 18 is where we will begin today. I will read uh, a little bit into chapter 19 for us as well. And once again, it's not printed in your bulletins because of the length of it. Uh, so if you would like to uh, follow along in, uh, in the scriptures, uh, page 269 of the Blue Bibles is where you will find our passage today. So if you not have, have not been with us, uh, we are in the time of history when David's son, Absalom, has conspired to take the throne from his father, David. David has fled out of Jerusalem, and now Absalom is pursuing David out of the city. A battle between then the forces of Absalom and David was inevitable. Absalom could never fully, confidently reign as king, even if his father David had been driven out of the city. Nevertheless, as long as David lived, he would be a threat. At a minimum, he would be a distraction to Absalom's aspirations of leading the country as king. And so, as we saw last week, at the Council of Hushai, and according to the sovereign ordained will of God, Absalom himself comes out of the city leading the forces against David and his forces. Son against father, false king against the true king, against the Lord's anointed. So hear the living word of the living God. It is a longer section of scripture. I will speed up the reading at various points along the way and slow it down for various points of emphasis. This is the word of God. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth more than 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the gate, uh, stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. 
But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go and tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may. Let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now, David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And, he said, and he, as he went, he said, O oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. 
O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son, Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, you today, have cov are, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commander, that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. The king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, the king. We come before you, and we come before this word that you have given, that you have authored, that you have inspired for your church, for your people, for your kingdom, that we might know how to live before you, before Jesus, you, the king and head of the church, we pray then today as we look at this text that you would be with us, that you would enlighten, that you would clarify, that you would open our minds, that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several times throughout this study in 2 Samuel, I have made reference to the very first words of the New Testament. By way of reminder, the very first words of the New Testament are these, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Those are the first words of the New Testament. Today, I actually want to start us not with that, even though I just started us with that. I want to start us with the very last words of the Old Testament. Okay, the last words of the Old Testament are these, you don't need to turn to it, but Malachi chapter four, here are the last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is going to be John the Baptist. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Surely, that turning is something that is needed in every generation. But it is ser seriously needed in the text that is before us here between Absalom and David as well. 
But the Old Testament closes with that, and we can ask just here for a moment, why is that so significant? Why is that promise, why is that statement the last thing that is said in the Old Covenant in anticipating the New Covenant, which is to come? Why is it so significant? I think we can give two reasons for it. First is this. The heart is the heart of the matter. The heart is the heart of the matter. Okay, I will turn the hearts. That's what is promised. I'll, I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, of the children to the fathers. The heart is the heart of the matter. If we're called to love the Lord God with all of our heart, we're going to need a new heart. We're going to need a transplanted heart. We're going to need the heart of stone taken out, replaced with a heart of flesh so that we're able to love. The heart is the heart of the matter. And then the second thing, why this, I think, is included as last words, is because the father-son, father-child relationship is so essential to understanding God and our relationship to God and our relationship to each other. Let me remind you of something else that Jesus said. Perhaps you recall it, preached on it a while back from John chapter 14. Jesus says this, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The world has to know that this Son, the eternal Son, who has become the incarnate Son of God, the world has to know that that Son loves his Father. And the Father has likewise, throughout the New Testament, declared his love for the Son, right? At the baptism, this is my beloved Son. At the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. The Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Son. Now think for a moment of the prayer that concludes in John 17 with this idea. Jesus praying to his Father and praying to his Father that the love with which they have loved one another, the Father and the Son, that that love would be in them. I want this father-son, this father-child love that exists between us perfect in all of its ways to be amongst the people as well, in our hearts, turning and transforming our hearts. Now, I get that that may sound like an odd introduction to the text that is before us today, the one that I just read for us, but I think it fits, and I think we'll see it as we work our way through this, as we consider the hearts of the various men in this story. Absalom's wicked heart, Joab's cold heart, and David's broken heart in this passage. And we'll start as we look at this with Absalom's wicked and evil heart. Uh, Genesis 6 makes a statement that is oftentimes quoted and that many of us know well. When God looks upon mankind, he makes this declaration. He saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That the things that poured from us, whatever they were, were somehow poisoned by evil. Whatever came forth from us, whatever poured forth from our hearts was no longer pure, was no longer clean in and of itself. Instead, was tinged with, was characterized by the evil that exists within our hearts. Now, if 
we were to have a trial and the veracity of that statement were challenged, the prosecution would surely bring various witnesses and say, here, look, here's a picture of the heart of men. Here's a picture of evil continually spilling out of the hearts of men with every intention of the thought. I don't know that Absalom would be exhibit A in that, but he certainly could be one of the exhibits for the prosecution as testimony that this is the reality. This is the stuff that is inside of us. These murderous thoughts, these self-glorifying thoughts are the things that inhabit all of us. And we recognize this as well. Absalom's problem is not simply his words or his actions. They are bad. But Jesus teaches us, right, that out of the heart comes forth all of this evil. What animates the hands of Absalom and the mouth of Absalom and the desires and the ambitions of Absalom is the evil that is inside of his heart. Last week, we saw him sleep with his father's concubine and develop his plan, his strategy, to kill his father. To kill his father, the anointed king. And in this text, his evil reaches its end. Now, a couple of images are given to us here to help us to see that image, to see that reality of his evil and it reaching his end, his evil heart. One is in verse 18. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. Now, uh, parenthetical comment, we read earlier, a couple of chapters before this, that in fact Absalom did have some sons. So either this pillar was erected prior to him having sons, or those sons have died and this pillar has been erected at that point. But nevertheless, here's the point. The monument is a testimony of a man who sought after his own glory. The, the testimony to a man who sought to establish himself, who didn't trust in the Lord, who didn't trust in the Lord's providence in his life, who didn't trust in the station that God had assigned to him, but instead aspired to rule, aspired to the position of power and the position of glory. His was a heart far from God. It was a heart that was turned inward upon itself and upon his own ambitions. And it becomes then a Babel-like monument. Right? You see the parallel for it. Babel is erected to establish a name for ourselves. And this pillar, this monument, is erected for the same idea to establish my name, to remember my name. But there's another monument. There's a monument that preceded this, at least in terms of the text, that actually followed it in terms of the actual history. And they took Absalom, verse 17, and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. A cairn. A cairn is built over Absalom in the midst of the forest. Throw another rock on it. Throw another rock on it. It's a symbol of the judgment of God. You are buried underneath of these stones. And for another picture of this, this is Achan, right? This is Achan in the book of Joshua. 
taken out and covered by stones. Now, those are the monuments. But we don't want to miss the other thing that's in this passage, the clear image of the false king, and we'll go back to this for the last time, with his great hair stuck in a tree. Stuck there. Stuck in a tree between heaven and earth. Hanging from a tree between heaven and earth providentially. Right? Not put there by a person. Providentially stuck. Providentially suspended. Looking at him in that position, we're forced to remember words from Deuteronomy 21. Here are the words. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, which Absalom has, and he is put to death, and you shall hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The cursed man is hanged on the tree. And that's going to be quoted again in the New Testament as well. Absalom's heart was full of wickedness. We've had, what, six chapters now? Worth of stories of this wicked man and his wicked, evil heart. He's cursed by God, and it comes to its end here. Now let's look at Joab. Joab is once again seen here to have a cold heart, a calloused heart, a calculating, cold-hearted man is he. He's cold-blooded. As some of us, some of us have had this discussion in the back. Joab can be hard to figure out, right? He's, he's in one sense, he's a little enigmatic because you look at his life and at various times you can look at his life and say, okay, this is a valuable guy to David. He's supporting David. In some ways, he seems like David's right hand. He's strength of David. He's the commander, often, of the armies of David. But other times, you see through it, and you simply see that he is murderous, that he is conniving and cunning in his heart and scheming, and that's what we see in this passage. So David assigns the three commanders, the three commanders, of course, are Joab and his brother Abishai uh, and Ittai the Gittite. And unsurprisingly, as the narrative kind of unfolds, you get the idea that Joab, used to being in command, takes command. He takes command of the field. He's the one who's able to stop the battle. When he blows the horn at the end of it, that's the end of the battle. So three men are in command, but Joab takes the field and ends up commanding. We're told next to nothing about the battle itself. Right? We know where it took place. Uh, it took place in a wooded area outside of Ephraim, uh, and we know that it was a great victory. It was a great victory for the forces of David. But our author is not interested at all in this case of telling us any battle details. Instead, our author is interested in the characters of the men that we're talking about right now, and Joab being one of those men. So Joab receives the report from an unnamed man that Absalom, that Absalom has been found. And then this interaction with that unnamed man illustrates, just puts Joab's heart on full display. First of all, Joab says to him, listen, I would have paid you, right? This is verse 12 of this, if you want to look at it. I would have paid you. I would have paid you 10 pieces of silver and a belt if you would have just killed him there. And you see the heart of this man. A little bit of money, he'd kill. A little bit of an offense, 
He'd kill or he'd have somebody else kill as well. He'd pay to have this man killed, cold-blooded. Secondly, the man then responds to Joab by noting the clear instructions that David gave. For my sake, this is the man talking to Joab, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. That's what David says. Now, without those instructions, without David having given those instructions, Joab would have been free, right? Been free in the context of war, in the context of a battle, to execute the justice warranted against that usurper. That guy's in the battle. That guy's in the army. That guy is the head of things. He could have just done it. But, but, there are instructions from his king. There are instructions from his commander. And the instructions from the commander are clear. They're unambiguous. And to some extent, and the writer is reminding us this, of this, they're public. They're public. They're known, the instructions. This is what the young man says. He says, uh, for in our hearing, the king commanded you. In other words, it wasn't just some little private word that was spoken to you. In our hearing, the king commanded you. And then if you go to verse 5 in here, it, it, it says as much when David is giving the command itself. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. And what this young man is saying to Joab is, I heard it. You heard it. We should obey what the king said. <laughs> and then the next verse again reveals Joab's heart as well. The guy says, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, that is Absalom's life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. What he's saying there is, Joab, I know you. I know who you are. If I'd have gone ahead and killed this guy, I know that you would have, when push came to shove and we were standing before David, that you would have said, I don't know, I was trying to preserve him, David, but, but this guy, this guy killed him. What could I do? In other words, he knows that Joab is the kind of guy who would leave you hanging out to dry in front of the king and put you on the hook for it. He'd be the patsy. He'd be the one to take the blame for what Joab wants to actually take place. And Joab can't even defend himself against any of these things that are said, right? In verse 14, he says, I will not waste time like this with you. The reason he won't waste time is because he can't win this argument. There is no winning this argument for Joab in this situation. So Joab then in direct defiance of his king, gives the false king exactly what he deserved. The, the, the three javelins, spears, darts, arrows, whatever you, want, whatever you want to call them. Three of them, right in the heart. The man has apparently taken him to where Absalom was hanging in the tree. And then, of course, the armor bearers of Joab finish him off. Right into the wicked heart go deserved arrows. Joab and his men are in no way gentle with David's rebellious son. In chapter 19, Joab will then come to David and have to bully and rebuke David to rouse him out of his personal grief, of which, in fact, Joab was the immediate cause. He's cold-hearted. And now let's consider David's brokenheartedness. David, at the beginning of this, he's ready to lead his men into battle. 
He is stout-hearted, but his men don't want to put him at risk. Presumably by this point, David's gotten a little bit older. And the men kind of perhaps look at him. Perhaps it's just a statement. No, no, no. You stay in the back. We don't want you to get hurt. Perhaps it's that. It could also be a nice way of saying you're a little bit older, David, and uh, we don't want to put you in this situation. You've been in plenty of battles. Let us fight this one. So the men march by him under the command of the three, and then David gives that order for gentleness in verse 5. And then we get a pause on David until we get these messengers. Joab knows that these messengers are not going to be bringing the king news that the king is actually delighted to hear, regardless of whether or not he should be, because Absalom is dead. And that whole story of the, the running and the two guys going up there uh, with the news is designed to heighten the tension, to heighten the tension, to get us to feel David's anticipation of, of news coming, of good news coming, of that guy in particular brings good news, so it brings us right up to the point of David hearing the news. And then what we see is David, of course, overcome with grief and weeping and crying publicly, oh my son, Absalom, over and over. So what are we to make of this? Well, we know what Joab thinks of it, right? Foolish order that you gave, foolish reaction. Joab looks at David. For him, David's gotten soft-hearted, all mushy-hearted. And it's not right, and as a matter of fact, David, it's dangerous. You're the king. You can't be acting like this in front of your people. Even the much-beloved commentator, Matthew Henry, sees much criticism for David for having been too enamored by his love for his son, that he couldn't see the wickedness of his son, he couldn't see the need for justice and the need for thankfulness to God for the deliverance and for the victory. And I think we can agree with some of this criticism. In fact, I gave a similar criticism of David when he failed to bring justice against his son Amnon for his heinous sins back in chapter 13. And surely, surely David needed to be more publicly thankful for the men who had risked their lives in loyal service to him. That is all true. But at the same time, I hope we can see here when we see David in his grief and in this lament, I hope we can see in him a brokenheartedness, a, a, a love in David, a mercy in David, in David's heart, that even if it is distorted and disproportional, it's the kind of heart you want to see in a king and in a father. David is painfully aware of two things. First, he's painfully aware that at the root of all of this death and devastation is not Amnon, it's not Ahithophel, it's not Shimei, it's not Joab or Absalom. Instead, David himself is the root of all of this. It's his sin, it's his adultery slash rape, it's his murder, it's the desires of his own wicked heart 
that are the root of this. God made it very clear, right? This is the judgment that Nathan pronounced from God against David in the sin. The sword will not depart from your house. David is the root of all of this, even if other actors are involved in what's taking place. There is thus, as David sees it, divine justice in all of this devastation, but it starts with him. Secondly, David knows that he has received, he himself as king, has received a mercy that he did not deserve. David was forgiven and he didn't deserve to be forgiven. God spared him. God spared David from death. David knew that what David wrote in Psalm 103 was true, not just in the abstract, not just true theoretically, but it was true of him that God did not deal with him according to the measure of his sins. God didn't deal with him in that way, to that measure. And so David's heart is shaped by this deep awareness of his own sin, of the evil of his own heart, of the idea that a justice is deserved, and a deeper awareness of a father who forgives and shows compassion on his children. Those are realities in David's life. Both of those things, both of those things are in his heart. The depth of the awareness of his sin and the mercy that he has received from God. How does one then, as a father and as a king, apply justice and mercy? They can't just cancel each other out where they both become meaningless, chaos. The picture of justice in our passage is that Absalom is hanging in a tree, dead and buried then after. The picture of mercy here is that David is alive and David in the story is restored as king. The end of the story, when David then goes to the gate, not the gate of Jerusalem, the gate of the city where they were, David goes to the gate of the city, and the king is sitting in the gate. The people come to him. The king has regained his position. The people come before the king. That's the mercy that is there. David's heart is torn, and so he cries out in the last verse of chapter 18, Would I had died instead of you. Would I have died instead of you? In one sense, the simple heart cry of any parent who's lost a child. Would I have died instead of you? But he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear what's being said right here. Because what is said right here is that in his anguish and in his love, the anointed king is saying, I would offer myself as a substitute so that the enemy, the rebellious one, so that he might live. The anointed king would take the curse, the justice upon himself that the sinner 
might receive mercy. 1,000 years after this awful slash glorious day, this bitter sweet victory, another son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, will be lifted up. He will be lifted up and he will be suspended between heaven and earth. He will be hung on a tree, pierced for our transgressions. He will take the curse of our sin. He will take the record of our debt. He will take, if you will, the Absalomness that dwells in us. He will take that upon himself and he will become on our behalf the one who is cursed, the one who is the king hanging from the tree, accused of being the false king. In reality, with the sign above his head, the true king. He would take the wrath and the judgment of God, his Father, against us for our rebellion. And with his blood, he will purchase mercy for the guilty. God, the Father, will not spare his son. David was spared. God, the Father, will not spare his own beloved Son. He will not deal gently with Jesus, who is himself gentle and lowly. And the subjunctive cry of a mourning king Would I have died instead of you? becomes instead the definitive declaration of a victorious risen king who says, I died for you. I did that. It's not a would. It's a did. I accomplished it. I died in your place. I absorbed the justice that you might receive the mercy. I quoted it earlier in the Old Testament. Listen to it from the New Testament. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became the cursed. He became the cursed one on our behalf. Absalom, the false king, is the cursed one in our text. Jesus takes that position upon himself. So that God becomes, or is, in the words of Romans, both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Both things, just and the justifier. And the reason that that happened is because the Father loved the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And because God so loved the world. And because the Father and the Son want their love in our sad hearts. Absalom 
died in rebellion, cursed by God. Jesus died in obedience, cursed for us. Cursed for us that we might receive mercy. Don't be like Absalom. Kiss the son. Kiss Jesus, the anointed king of kings, and you will find your heart's desire turned. Turned in love towards the father. Adopted as children whose hearts are turned in love towards their heavenly Father. May the Lord strengthen and may the Lord tenderize our own hearts. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, thank you for the pictures that you give to us in your word that reveal to us both the depth of our rebelliousness and the mercy that you have given to us then because of the justice that was poured out upon your son, the king. Jesus, you are our king. We hail you, our king. We enthrone you, our king. We thank you for your rule. We thank you for your conquering love. We thank you that you conquered death and hell and Satan on our behalf. Thank you for becoming the curse for becoming sin on our behalf that we might become the beloved children of God. And that is what we are. We thank you for it, Lord. Help us to live in allegiance to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.